0: To episode 17 of Sounding Board. I'm Rob Langham, and tonight we follow up our nostalgic journeys into the heart of the naughties and Britpop with a discussion of the guitar-electronica interface. Bands and artists that experiment with sound and different instrumentation, whether authentic in inverted commas or synthetic again in inverted commas, have always been present. But the possibilities these days are more endless than ever. So, to help steer us through the discussion, I'm pleased to welcome two real-life musicians. First, we welcome back Brian Gering, who started episode 11 in November 16, where we analyse the current state of live music. Brian's an alumnus of sadly missed Oxford rock combo, Dallas Don't. Hello, Brian. Welcome Hi,
1: Thank you very much. Thanks, guys.
0: Uh, well, we're pleased for the first time to welcome Peter Lloyd, who is a musician and recording artist and trades under the name of Kid Kin. Pete, we'll be talking a little bit more about your own body of work a little later, but for now, welcome. Thanks for having me. Right, fellas, any particular items that caught your attention in terms of uh, music news this week?
1: Well, you'd be hard-pressed to miss the news that Chris Cornell sadly passed away recently. Um, it's something that was featured in, in all the major media outlets. There was a, a set on on uh, Six Music about him I was listening to yesterday. Uh, the music world seems to be shocked by this. Um, Cornell's a man of, of 52. He seemed to have escaped... The um the kind of the, the the attrition of the grunge musicians that happened over the years. He going to be a very t- together guy. Um, there's there's still some debate and some investigation happening over the the circumstances of it. Um, but yeah, a, a very very sadly missed musician who made a, a tremendous amount of excellent music with Soundgarden and Audio Slave and Temple of the Dog as well. So um, that was very sad news to hear.
0: Yes, I mean it carries on this terrible run of people dying too young. But um, as you said, I mean it seems to be. A little bit uncertain at the moment what the circumstances of the death were there's some dispute from his family so um you know thoughts with them and and thoughts with the, the surrounding people uh pete anything from you yeah. um
2: yeah i was trying to keep my ear to the ground a little bit the past few days knowing i was coming on this show um a couple of interesting pieces of soundtrack news that got announced today actually um firstly um i i, I was watching telly last night and a trailer got pushed upon me. It was for the new uh, Brad Pitt film on Netflix. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called War Machine and he plays some kind of general who gets sent off to Iraq to win a war under the pretense that he can actually make a difference or something like that. I think it's meant to be a comedy. But anyway, the trailer looked a little bit hit and miss from what I could see. But um, it turns out uh, there's going to be a soundtrack for the film and uh, a song from the soundtrack got released today. Um, the soundtracks by Nick Cave oh, and right. Warren Ellis who mm. obviously have got a lot of history with doing film soundtracks yeah. um, and one song from that got dropped today online so you can go away and have a listen to it if you want um, the whole soundtrack's actually released this Friday so right. quite short notice so, but you know
0: any any verdict on that song if you listen to it yourself? <laughs> I
2: haven't even had a chance to listen to it yeah. but I know they're quite prolific and I'm a fan of some of their previous soundtracks yeah. so uh, I'll definitely be checking that out and uh, as a sort of segue from that obviously you're probably aware the new series of Twin Peaks started last night in America Um and today the news followed that there's going to be a couple of soundtracks to go with that as well so I think there's going to be a, an original music soundtrack and also um, a soundtrack for the songs featured in the show Um and they're both going to be out at the uh, beginning of September so
1: I, I think, think that's salivating nice. news indeed I think uh, <laughs> all round yeah
0: so Brian are you a Twin Peaks fan?
1: Um, I've only seen the film and yeah. found that to be both disturbing and, and also quite frightening and I'm told that that's really what the series does as well. Yeah. So um, I might I might dip into the new season, yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm currently watching the original series again um, just to buy myself some time before I get into the new one, so uh, yeah, I'm sort of fully prepared. In fact, I've never watched it before and I've kind of been biding my time. Once yes. the news of this one got announced, I kind of knew it was the perfect time to... Uh, to give yeah. it a first watch, so,
0: yeah. I haven't really watched it properly either, despite being a bit of a David Lynch fan, and I've seen most of his movies that I've really enjoyed. Not all of them, I must admit, but, yeah. you know, I would really like to, to see it, and I think that might have given me an idea to return to box set world and <laughs> yeah. catch up on the first series, I think. So that's great. Um, for me, um, not so much music news, but I'd really like to recommend Loud and Quiet series of music podcasts, Midnight Chats, as well as producing what I've come to regard as one of the best print publications on music out there and available in record store, stores and hipster coffee outlets the nation over, the team have brought us a series of very engaging interviews, the backlist of which I've been busy catching up with. Um, I'd especially recommend those that involve Slow Dive, who are continuing to be disarmingly modest about their triumphant return. Uh, Mike Skinner from The Streets, even though in that trope that you get from so many artists he refuses to talk about the street's work itself he still manages to be quite interesting when talking about things like mcdonald's and and <laughs> being a father and that kind of thing but it's a really entertaining listen and uh, Samuel T. Herring of Future Islands, um, which is a fascinating tale of suddenly making it big after years of graft on the road. Not my favourite band, I have to say, but he does come across as a very, very enjoyable uh, guy to listen to an interview with and uh, a nice fella. So um, I really recommend that from Love and Quiet. I think they're really beginning to sort of develop a body of work, both in print and as part of the podcast hierarchy. After this break, we're going to be coming back with today's theme, which is on the Guitar-Electronica intersection. Welcome back. In this classic tune about musical one-upmanship, James Murphy of LCD Sound Systems, thinly veiled narrator, tells of selling his guitars to purchase a set of turntables and then admitting to doing the reverse a few months later. As warned at the start, we're going to spend a few minutes today looking at such instances in real life And like many of our previous discussions, we'll start by picking a band or an artist each of us like that is renowned for such behaviour. So first,
1: Brian, who do you want to talk about? I would like to talk about the Japanese musician Cornelius, also known as the Japanese Beck, which is kind of a good encapsulation of the sort of thing he does. A lot of sampling, a lot of electronic sounds and noises. Uh, together with a, a real knack for putting a riff together as well he was uh, before that in a band that wasn't very well known over here um just doing standard rock music um and you can listen to his his first album from 97 phantasma which is a real assault of of a kind of a sensory overload of of different mu- musical effects it's like a, a kitchen sink thing where he's just throwing all the different uh, kinds of, of of sound you can get from uh, noisy uh, distorted guitars to to glass beats, to to samples from cartoons and and electronic uh, noises, uh, which then is kind of uh, he kind of moves out into a more mature style in his next album um, called Point in two thousand and six. All the songs are based on recordings from nature, um, and then really everything the guy does is interesting, um, and uh, he, he's got this real sense of the difference between acoustic sound and electronic kind of degraded sound, and he gets a great balance between the two things. Uh, so I think he's a really good example of somebody who's got a foot in both camps and navigates them very well, even if he starts off more on the electronic side than the, than the more instrument-playingy side.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I must admit, I mean, I have, it turns out, got a track that Brian put on a CD for me <laughs> on, on my iPod, um, which I think is called Gum. I think we were just looking at it beforehand.
1: Yeah. Which album's that from? That's that's off point. So yeah. that, that, I, I would say point is a good starting, starting yeah. point. If you're going to yeah. listen to the music of Cornelius... Um, it's a really interesting piece, and it's not too too frenetic as some of the songs are on on uh, Phantasma. Um, and he's actually got a new album coming out at the end of June called Mellow Waves, which okay. I'm guessing from the sound of it is going to be fairly approachable. Um, <laughs> but you never know with this guy; he's he's capable of anything. Um, so so yeah, definitely do, do check him out if you want to see what what the possibilities are of when when crossing over electronic music with with guitars and drums.
0: And Pete, is he a name that's familiar for you? No, he's, he isn't actually, no. no.
1: Um, it, I feel like it maybe rings a bell, but I couldn't
2: tell you that yeah. I'm familiar with him at all. Is, is he like a multi-instrumentalist? He performs solo, but kind of has lots going on.
1: Yeah, he he is he ha, he has toured live enough, people have gone to see him before, and he, um, he'll um he get a full live band of people on stage. He, he plays all the instruments when he records. Mm. I've heard some songs that he's recorded, and I've got no idea how he could possibly do that mm. on stage. Um, It would be fascinating to see. Um, but I, his first album was fairly big. It was using some uh, some soundtracks, um, but that was back in the late nineties. And mm-hmm. since then, I think his stuff has really been more famous in Japan and perhaps among among some uh, some some electronic fans around the world. But without yeah. without being in the, the broader sort of uh, eye, um, but worth a look, I think. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I think Sounds I'll be checking him out.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of a another Japanese artist. Have you heard of an artist called World's End Girlfriend? No. This is yeah. It kind of fits the description of what you're talking about, but I, like a solo Japanese artist who seems to be immeasurably talented and can play guitar and piano and seems to do everything under the sun on his records mm. and live, I can't really understand how he he could replicate it and he doesn't play many shows. Every few years he'll come out with another record, which is just some, just. it's quite almost like showy-offy, you know? It just feels like an exhibition of his talent and it's 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 incredible to listen to but yeah um japan seems to make them
1: (laughs) yep yeah Yeah, worth worth checking out
0: yeah we should probably do a a japan japan episode actually of the pod i think i think there would be quite a lot to talk about i think it would be really interesting it's really been at the vanguard of kind of popular culture in all its forms so you know and i think anybody who listens to this pod enough will know that one of my bugbears is that there's too much anglo-american emphasis on music so other oh, countries being represented as I'm going to do in a few minutes actually uh, is all I'm all for yeah yeah and Pete who have you picked out
2: okay uh, a few bands kind of sprung to mind when right. we were looking into this um, bands like Battles and and Three Trap Tigers who are a couple of my favourite bands who definitely yeah. have a have a balance between traditional rock music and electronic elements but uh, the band I've gone with today is 65 Days of Static Largely because I kind of go quite uh, far back with this particular band. Um, Like a lot of people, the bands that stick with them through their life tend to be the ones when they were a a young teenager just starting to listen to more sort of varied styles of music. And um, I went to see 65 Days uh, in Liverpool when I was still at school and just kind of totally blew me away just with... um, just with this, this, the sheer scope of what they were trying to achieve uh, on a relatively small budget, um, that at the time they were they were touring tiny, tiny venues. Um, but what what you were listening to was just unlike anything I'd heard before. So back when they first started, their 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 songs were quite sort of visceral. They were very much like um, a halfway point between like traditional post rock music and something more akin to. Apex Twin, right. you kind mm. of felt like every drum beat was was backed up by this ridiculously complex drum track with loads of glitches and complicated fills. Mm. Um, it never really sounded like um, an organic four-piece band, which mm. is what you're presented with when you go to see them live. Um, so it's been really interesting watching them develop over the past few years and trying to find a place mm. um, and try and build an audience with, with that style of music. They've kind of calmed down but also um, expanded their sound in equal measure um, and they're an instrumental band that should be pointed out as well and uh, you know it's always difficult uh, as an instrument, instrumental act to, um, to to find sort of sustained success you know um, and find an audience that kind of keeps you going so um, I think what interests me about this band in particular is how heavily reliant they are on, on technology they've always made huge use of laptops. Like, I remember seeing them at Truck Festival, festival actually, obviously the local festival. Um, I think it was 20, 2013, something like that. And they were playing their, their sort of big hit. Their, their most popular song is called Retreat, Retreat. And halfway through the song, the laptop just got going haywire, and that set the drummer off on the wrong pace, and the guitarist is scowling at the drummer, and it all got really awkward really quickly. And this is years and years... You know, into their career, they must have played that song a thousand times. Um, But it just shows you the sort of um, the the problems that can come up when you rely that heavily on technology. You know, this this is there's many bands that do this now, but this is a band that I guarantee the entirety of their set is running alongside some sort of um, laptop programmed equivalent that that just goes on in the background. You know, and everything's got to be spot on; otherwise, it all just falls apart really, really quickly. Um, so on record, it's great because you can make these lush sounds and you can do whatever you want and you can have a hundred takes at getting it right, but then live, it's obviously a, a completely different beast. So I think part of my interest in in this band is the fascination of watching them live and thinking like this could go wrong at any second because you kind of realize what they're trying to pull off is, is kind of a lot harder than it looks on the
0: surface. That's fascinating actually, because, I mean, he's very brave, I think, of acts like that to play live, I think, and to, to really go for it and to take that risk that you've just been detailing. I mean, if you take someone like Brian Eno, who's probably the daddy of the whole thing, you know, in terms of electronic music. I mean, am I right that he, he doesn't really play live, does he, very much? Or, I, I don't know if he, he tours or anything. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that he's just obviously so wedded to the studio. I might be completely wrong there, he might might be playing or might have played a lot in the past or whatever but I get the impression he's very kind of studio focused in the main and um, you know it's yeah it's it's very ambitious to take it on having seen yourself Pete a couple of times I've seen the amount of equipment you've got lined up and you know and having to do it all on your own I'll come back to you with some questions later on about potential collaborations but it's uh, yeah, really, really good band to pick. Really, really interesting. Brian, are you you sort of fan of fan of theirs?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've only heard them in bits and pieces, but, but the, yeah, they've got a great reputation as a live band, in, in spite of all the details that that have to go right in order for it to work. Um, mm. um, but uh, I don't know them well. I can't say. Yeah,
2: yeah I, think, I think what's interesting is how they, they did have a reputation as a live band, and I think I think they're one of those bands that have a reputation for being like one of the hardest working bands. Maybe they played like an unbelievable amount of shows. You'll read some of the statistics about how many shows they've played in certain years and it kind of makes your head explode um but it's been interested in uh, recent years to see how their careers moved more towards uh soundtrack and work like uh recently they soundtracked um a computer game called no man's sky which is uh like an exploration um sci-fi game which was really popular and this is seemed like a really big success for them. Mm. They, um, they, it, it challenged them musically as well in, mm. in a way that was quite innovative. So, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. Here. No, this is um, fascinating. Yeah. But it, yeah. It yeah. feels like rather than just, you know, going across the same pattern of make an album, tour it, make an mm. album, tour it. Um, they've, they've always on been on the lookout for maybe some more interesting projects. So this game, No Man's Sky, um, is quite innovative in the gaming world in that yeah. it's meant to be—it's meant to be a simulator for like the universe. So mm. anyone playing the game is flying a spaceship free space, and they can land on a planet, um, and that planet won't have been landed on by any other any other gamer who's played that game, mm. um, because that's sort of like automatically generating, and mm. everything about the game is randomly generating. So each player's experience is totally different. Mm. Um, So in conjunction with this, 65 Days of Static created a soundtrack for this game in which the music was also randomly generated. So they created um, loads and loads of individual elements that could be moulded together in various different ways so that when, when a player played the game, that the music would also shape differently and affect their experience in a unique way. So...
0: This is a different world for me, unsurprisingly, <laughs> as a forty-eight-year-old man. But you know, it's uh, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and you're quite right. I mean, to get involved across all media and different types of things, it's just uh, that's brilliant to hear. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, really bands
1: that have a hard enough time trying to do work that gets them paid well. So, yeah, and any yeah. of them that get get into the yeah. the video game industry, I, I think that's that's something they um, yeah they, they will.
2: It just, be just to do. It Shows you how hard some bands are willing to work as well. You know, sure. towards their craft. It's yeah incredible.
0: Uh, the band I'm going to pick, uh, also a non-Anglo-American band, a Russian band from Perm, which is a city just to the west of the Urals, um, and they're called Nooms, or Nooms, or Gnomes, it's spelled G-N-O-O-M-E-S, so it's presumably pronounced Gnomes, but spelled as it is to please search engine optimizers. Um Their second album, Chuck, was released in March, and it's a woozy, fuzzy, but incredibly tuneful effort. Indeed, and one that one could loosely lump into the psychedelic bracket. Uh, Grumbling Fur are probably the nearest current comparison. Um, very, very like them, and I think they're darlings of the quietest, just as Grumbling Fur are. Other clear comparisons can probably be drawn with Krautrock and Noy in particular, and and no discussion about the crossover between rock and electronica would be complete without mention of that band of people. So um, I really urge you to look out for them. They've got a UK tour coming up, and I was quite excited to see that they had a potential... date at the Purple Turtle in Reading but it doesn't look like that's on the list anymore so it might have fallen by the wayside but they've got London, Norwich, a few other places Um, and I think they're also you know sort of hesitantly politically uh, outspoken in a kind of non-in favour of Vladimir Putin kind of way so I think it is definitely an interesting band to look out for and uh, certainly the music is beautifully melodic and enjoyable but with a lot of fuzzy guitar sort of mixed in with a lot of electronica so so great um, and we've already touched on it already but we are talking about bands that have changed over time from being solely rock bands to ones that increasingly use keyboards or switch between the two it seems to be that there are tons of examples any particularly favourite examples apart from the ones we've already mentioned fellas Pete um, well or maybe starting
2: with some mainstream examples yeah um, when I was mulling this over um, artists like Bonnie Ver came to mind yeah. in a sort of Uh, starting out very sort of, um, you know, acoustically and eventually bringing lots of electronic elements in successfully, um, into the sound in a way that didn't hinder the popularity. If anything, it probably only made it better. And I think he's had a lot of strong connections with Kanye West and who's had a similar sort of cycle with his sound as well. Remember the album he did, 808s and Heartbreaks, which is very much based on, uh, you know, drum machines and different electronic sounds so I think it's a very common thing for people to do in the mainstream to freshen up their sound and that doesn't seem to be a negative um, at all and tends to get accepted by by their fan bases Um, but one that uh, occurred to me for a band that I have liked when I was younger is Muse Um, and when I got into Muse it was the very early days of Muse just after their first album Showbiz and You'll probably remember that back then they they were well known for being compared to Radiohead or, yes, or yeah, a perceived absolutely. comparison uh, to Radiohead. Uh, I think it must have been around the time of the Bends, maybe yeah, um, yeah. When, when Muses' first album came out. Um, and then Muses' popularity really started to soar when their sophomore album came out, Origin of Symmetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you remember many of the tracks off off this album, but it was still a very rocky album, lots of riffs, but definitely you could tell that their sound had shifted quite a lot in this album. Lots of synthesizer sounds, um, uh, that sort of space rock sound that they're, they're known for now really started to come into their sound at that point. And whether that is a direct reaction to the, to the Radiohead comparisons that they were getting in an attempt to move away from that, that, that could be part of it. Um, but I did think it was quite interesting how they went quite abruptly from a guitar rock band to to something varying quite in a different direction. And, and a lot of people say that that was, Origin of Symmetry was their high point because there was still some element of balance there. Yeah. Um, whereas these days you probably know that they're, they're very much more uh, a space rock prog type of outfit. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Albeit still extremely popular.
0: Yes. Yeah. Really interesting. I mean, I think I'm um, mentioning Bonivert there. I mean, Ben Woolhead, formerly of this parish, or actually going to appear potentially on next month's podcast, I'll give a little uh, clue there, is is no fan of Bonnivere and he's always <laughs> spitting bricks. But I do agree up to the point. I mean, actually, Boniver, some of his later output. I'd liken a bit to a band whose album we reviewed two episodes ago which is uh, Dirty Projectors most recent one which is extremely innovative and initially I didn't like it very much at all but it really grew on me because we had to um, postpone the date of the podcast and in the intervening period of like so sort of maybe three weeks or so I listened to the album a lot more and ended up really liking it mm-hmm. and Neil brought my attention to like a really good podcast that was a, an exploration of one of the songs on that album Up in Hudson which is just absolutely fascinating Listen about how he puts together all the music like he's a real auteur so, so yeah I mean I think there's some fascinating interesting stuff going on that veers towards that kind of R&B with the kind of mm-hmm. You know the vocals, the kind of auto tune sort of vocoder style yeah. vocals, and Amuse is a great example as well. You know, Brian, anybody you want to
1: mention? Well, thinking about this, to be honest, and, and to my shame, uh, whenever an artist I like uh, stretches their their musical muscles and, <laughs> and and decides to be creative and move out of the thing that made them famous, it it tends to jar with me. And I'm, I was thinking back to the examples, and, and I wanted to to say, oh, I love it when this happens. But when um when a future a left a band, I quite like. I did an album called "Plot Against Common Sense," which was quite keyboard-driven. And most of the things I love about the band were there, but I, for some re- for some reason it just doesn't sound like the thing that I like about the band. And I and, and this is this is something which you know history has proved me massively wrong here. But the first time I heard Kid A by Radiohead, I mean I I was <laughs> expecting something completely different. I was such a huge Radiohead fan. I now I now like that album, but yeah. it 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 was it was a disappointment for me at the time. Um, and I'm just trying to think of other examples. The later albums from Mogwai that rely more on keyboards. Yeah, not my favorite ones. I do like a lot of music that involves synthesizers and, and electronic elements, um, but the, the transition away from from something else that I already like, I don't know. I wish I could say I was one of these these people who will will applaud every attempt to to expand <laughs> the creativity of a band, but so, sometimes I just l- want to hear the thing that I already yeah, like from yeah. a band. Um, and if if I'm already prepared to hear a band I don't know of, um, then they've got a blank slate. But um, I, I, I might be an example of those, those people in in the, the world of music who. Um, just who, who who are a little bit resistant to, to that change
0: I think you're, you're being a bit modest there I think having had some of your mixtapes I think you, you're very open to like experimentation and different approaches and um but it's interesting there you mentioned Mogwai because Pete you talked about something earlier on about like being an instrumental band or artist and how it's sometimes difficult to sort of you know really sustain popularity because of that Mogwai have have, have have sort of occasionally dabbled in, in, in vocals, having yeah, vocals yeah. on the track. I mean, what's your general take on, on that? Do you you know do you want to expand a bit more on that? You know, Because I think it's a really interesting point to make.
2: Yeah, know. I mean, obviously Mogwai have been going for a long time and they've um, grown in popularity and they've grown their fan base from being a, um, an incredible instrumental band. Um, th- there has been vocals on most of their albums, yeah. usually one or two tracks. Yeah. Um, usually the guitarist Stuart Braithwaite who who sings. I don't think he's a massive fan of singing. No um, but comes he, across I think. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time he does tend to contribute some vocals on, on every album that they do. Um there's also a lot of their um a lot of their most popular songs have vocoder in um yes. as well. So they 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 make use of that. And I think maybe the 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 first couple of albums Probably were solely guitar based albums, but since then they've, they've they've had a lot of keyboards involved and yeah. like I said, vocoders and they've had a a keyboardist in their band I think for quite a few years now as well. So they've probably always been open to sort of trying new sounds on that front. Um, but I know you mean Brian about how how those sounds kind of have come to the fore a little bit more over the over the past couple of releases. And and it's a hard one because they've they've got these this amazing back catalog of of, of incredible guitar. Like visceral guitar songs. Um, so if you get presented an album which is like fifty, sixty percent of the songs are are more electronic based, it can be quite jarring. It's it's a different
1: thing, and it, it's it's not bad. It's not bad stuff at all. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was bad. But um, it's uh, yeah, it, it, it's just an example of a musician developing over time um, and and exploring new kinds of sound, and per, perhaps some of their fans not not developing yeah, their yeah. musical taste along with maybe.
2: You. I mean, I, sorry. I mean, I'd argue that if a band's been together for 15 years, then mm-hmm. if they're still just playing the same style of music or yeah. the, the same structure of song, they'd, they'd probably go insane. So, yeah, oh, yeah. It, it's probably just got a lot to do with appeasing themselves as, as much as anything else. No, I
0: think it's. I'm all for people sort of trying new things. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's one artist who interviewed in this month's Lab, and quite Wesley Gonzalez who. Used to be in the band Let's Wrestle, who have one of their albums was actually produced by Steve Albini. And they were a band that passed me by a bit, they were kind of like slightly dirty rock kind of outfit from London. And he, in his interview this month, has said, I've just totally left all that behind, it's now just synths, um, electronic. And actually, what I've heard is much more poppy than the kind of examples we've been talking about here. And it's, it's probably going to be chart endangering to be honest, but. I've quite I've, I've quite enjoyed what I've heard, so I think that's one to look out for that we might even review his album on a future podcast. Uh, but yeah, tons of other examples, I mean, the other one I wanted to pick up was Bowie, really. I mean, you know, who you know really just tried every musical style under the sun in the seventies, and then of course with Low, like one one side of Low, the album is almost entirely electronic. So um, you know, it's uh, oh, there's just so much going on. It always has been, really. So so yeah. Yeah, great. Um, so, so Brian, I mean, you, you've talked about your slight hesitation. Um, there has traditionally, going back to the Bob Dylan kind of Judas moment, you know, resistance among traditional audiences to anything that's new. And, and you know, often rock audiences can be a bit resistant to anything electronic. I remember in the... In the 80s I had a friend at school and I I will admit I was only 13 so this would explain why my friend was into ZZ Top at the time but he was a bit upset when ZZ Top brought out an album that had a drum machine on it and I mean do you think that kind of ludditism or whatever kind of still exists up to a point you know?
1: Possibly. I mean, I'd like to think that with um, the changing music scene now, well, the way the music industry works now, and that people tend to be buying songs individually more, there is constant access to all the music that there is. It's harder to really be stuck in a musical cul-de-sac that, that people w- would be into a broader range of things. Um, but um, I'm sure there are still people who uh, who, who like the, that classic drum guitar, bass, singer sound um, and, and aren't into uh, the, the more electronic thing. Um, having said that, um, you do see very diverse builds at gigs around the place. Um, it's not like bands that involve uh, keyboards are, are, are scared to go on stage with with, with other kinds of line-up. Um, from what I've seen, it seems to be a fairly, fairly friendly, fairly mixed musical environment.
0: Very much so. It's a broad church, isn't it, at the moment, fellas? I mean, I, you don't come across too much of that real resistance, do you? Yeah. I don't
2: think so. Um, I, I just... I, I've got no idea how to explain the phenomenon of why the, there are people out there who will just listen to music that doesn't have any electronic elements. I just, I just think that maybe there are people that prefer rock music and yeah. they will, they will be attracted to bands who are maybe like obviously popular at the moment. You've got like turbo two, two piece rock bands and they're going to appeal to people who like, you know, riffs and, yeah. and rock music and, and, And they'll be attracted to those bands, but it just feels like there's something quite circular about the whole thing. Like eventually those rock bands will need to keep their music interesting and start bringing in other elements to to make it more interesting. And that would probably involve other instruments or electronic sounds. Yeah, Um, Will that turn away their fans who have already sort of committed to them? I don't know. Um, And then if those Bands become more electronic. Then other bands are going to come up who are more raw and rough around the edges, and yeah. the whole thing just goes round and round. I don't really. I,
1: I th- there are always going to be teenagers, right? Yeah, and, exactly. and I, I don't think you can. I mean, this is, I, I, you can disagree with this. I don't think you can necessarily get across the same kind of visceral feeling for, for, with a uh, from an acoustic instrument with. Uh, with something that's that's digital and electronically produced, e- pressing a button is not the same as hitting strings with a plectrum. I th- I, th- I think that you can you can make a more, much more pissed off sound with a drum kit than you can with a drum machine. That, that, that's just a, that's just <laughs> my my, um, my sense of one of the differences between the, the acoustic sounds and the electronically derived sounds. So per- perhaps that's at the root of it. Um, people are just like thinking that a band has gone soft just because there's a nicely layered. Uh, kind of a, a array of uh, of of keyboard sounds as opposed, <laughs> as opposed to something um sharper um,
2: yeah like we're not talking dramatic difference is it like like, imagine if, uh, like, Queens of the Stone Age replaced their drummer for a drum machine and just see how everyone reacted. Like, this mm. is, you know, it, it's not yeah. really this type of change that we're talking about, but no. you'd imagine a lot of people would be pretty pissed off by that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, th- th- everyone has a personal preference. You you get nice things with with live musicianship. Like, there's, there's a phrasing which doesn't come across with with a programmed machine, but, um, yeah, I, I, I don't really, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's a really articulate um argument against using electronic instruments by people it's just i i don't like it not is what it boils <laughs> down to
0: yep okay um but coming back to some of the regard for innovation brian i mean you know there have been a lot of techniques over the years that have proved to be great additions as music is involved and not all of them have to be electronic you know there can be others as well um yeah, anything particularly spring to mind and which artists have used them at all
1: um, I, I quite like drum machines used in lots of different contexts. I think mm-hmm. a, alongside a, a live drummer, a drum machine can come up can produce some very nice effects. Um, the Warpaint album from last year, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, there was a few tracks there where there was a really nice uh, kind of syncopated effect between a drum machine and, and their drummer, who's a really, really good drummer. Um, and there's, there's lots of examples from other musicians in the past as well. Uh, Nine Inch Nails used, used it all the time. Um, and the, it, it's something that I, I quite like. When I think it must be quite quite difficult to to write that kind of complexity, and but I think it, when it works, it really works.
0: Yeah. Anything else? Pete, you must have a list as long, <laughs> as, long as you're on. Yeah. Where do we start?
1: Um,
2: yeah, just just keeping it to drummers. Like I, I think what's so good about modern music in terms of like technology is just being able to take the studio with you and all, all the work that mm. you've done as a band onto the the, the stage. It's just so easy now. So like, like you'll see a lot of drummers now with their, they'll have their usual full drum kit, and then there'll be some like a like a rectangle set of drum pads, you know, which are all just there, loaded up with the samples, the sounds from the Mm -hmm. album that they can't necessarily create acoustically. Um, Just, just so they don't have to perform a version of the song that might not be true to what people are expecting to hear. Um, And then, in addition to that, you know, that goes for everyone else in the band as well. You've got a lot of vocals these days who aren't just singing into a microphone. They've got their own effects processor, which is just in front of them, and they're fully in control of it, Um, adding all the effects that they need to create. And again, these can be lifted straight out of the studio. You've got guitarists using, instead of traditional pedal boards, which have got thousands of pounds worth of effects pedals on them, they're just... um, a board of buttons which are connected to a laptop which has got a bunch of plugins yep. going through it to create all the effects and again these will have been honed to perfection in the studio during the recording of the album and it's just a, simply a case of taking them with
0: you I'm starting to feel like I'm the only person on earth who didn't <laughs> know this you know <laughs> because I mean Brian you've been in a band and there's always a lot of equipment on stage isn't there but, but yeah yeah,
1: the, the bands I've been haven't um, haven't gone, gone as far as using those uh those pieces of technology but I've seen bands setting up with them and it is amazing seeing particularly a drummer who has a lot of different things to be doing at the same time anyway yeah. also being being in charge of triggering the samples um, but yeah I, I, guess, I guess when you could do it, it it really opens up a lot of new possibilities for a for band's live performance What about um, samples then because
0: that's been something that's like really changed music hasn't it over the last we talked about it on Hip Hop episode yeah. which was two or three ago and anything particularly interesting happening in that arena now? Yeah.
2: Well when I think of samples, I one of my favorite ever albums, and I seem to hear mixed reviews every time I speak to people about this is is um, the first album by the Avalanche's, the yes, Australian yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. DJ collective, if you will. Yeah. Um, since I left you, and I just love that album so much because it's the audacity of what they've tried to achieve solely using samples. You know, mm. it's kind of like typical like DJ Shadow, DJ a sample DJ philosophy of taking a bunch of samples and then making them into songs, but at the expense of like finding a drum beat and making it making it a catchy, they'd rather just shove another hundred samples in it and and keep on going until it, it, yeah. it works. Um and obviously when, when that album came out there were all sorts of rumours about how many years it had taken to create and yeah. and obviously it was a huge wait until their second album came out last year. Um so I don't feel like that's how music is made these days. The, no. the sort of slowly cutting and pasting of, of of different samples. I feel like it's a little bit more um, intuitive. Like yeah. th- there's a lot of artists who are who are able to sample themselves on stage and manipulate it on stage, all using you know a, a bit of clever uh, software. You know. Yeah it feels a little bit more, it's probably more common than you think now, but also a lot easier to do, so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And does uh, synthesizer technology, is that kind of continued to be exciting? I mean, is it, you know, compared to what was available, you know, like maybe 10 years ago, is it just, there's so much more is there that you can do?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. I mean, again, like, you have your traditional analog synthesizer of, of, of all the knobs and all the wires, and you can never really replicate the the. The depth of those type of analog synthesizers, and that's why you'll still see so many of them yeah. uh, in bands today because they, they just sound irreplaceable, really. But at the same time, if there's a really com- if there's a massive Korg synthesizer on one side, mm. you could probably replicate it with a piece of software and a much smaller piece of kit right. with a laptop on yeah. the other side. So there's always there's always a um, there's always a digitized way of getting at things these days, and often it's cheaper as well. Yeah, to, to to buy the software than it is to buy the the traditional analog hardware version. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, it's become increasingly common, and and that's just because it's so it is so affordable for people to get hold of this uh, software and just make music in their bedroom. and yes. Take yes. it on the road with them.
0: Yeah. Do you so? The bedroom isn't an apocryphal location for yeah. <laughs> creating music. Then you know, it's, kind, all it's all kind of where it starts. I think. Yeah, I think people yeah. will
2: sit at home and be like trying different ideas on a on a, on a cheap bit of bit of software maybe just a free edition of something or other and yeah. then they're like you know what this doesn't sound that bad and then it, they start to take it to the next level mm. and the next thing you know that they they can play on stage so um well you know that's the dream anyway it? doesn't annoy the
0: neighbors quite as much as cranking in your electric guitar <laughs> but i mean yeah that's fantastic i mean it's created some great music hasn't it so really really good so peter wanted to talk to you a bit about your own actor kid kin um, who you'd be very prominent on the Oxford scene for probably a good five years or so now is that right? Or uh, about, yeah, four maybe. Four yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, I mean, it's basically you, isn't it? Is that right? I mean, yeah. you're, you're kind of on your own. And Pete yes. played this this uh, Oxford Festival the Pump a few years ago. I remember like it looked like an incredible amount of work it's on stage. It was a very unusually warm night, actually. I think, and I remember like it was yeah. you were sort of doing all sorts of things on stage and created a real noise. Um... <laughs> um what I mean, you've produ- produced one full-length album, that's yeah. right, isn't it? And then last year you produced an absolutely fantastic single, Masterclass, which I think I would recommend everybody go out and hunt down. And a lot of people listening to the podcast would already be familiar with it as one of the best sort of Oxford tracks of the last few years. Um I mean, what what are your current plans? And, and I'm particularly interested in this kind of pros and cons of releasing albums versus hmm. singles and, and where you release them and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, that, that's a interesting discussion. I, I I have that in my head all the time. Right. And I see a lot of other bands talk about it as well. You know mm. what? There's a lot of talk um, at the moment about whether it's better to just release a series of singles than it is an album, be, just because of how f- throwaway the media is and whether it's better to put a lot of effort into a single, get as many people listening to it and then mm. um, repeat again in a couple of months' time. You know, that type of philosophy. I mean, you, you could do that for yeah. like... Eight tracks and then release those eight tracks as an album. You know that yeah. it's, it's, it's that same thing. And there have been a lot of pop artists who've released albums which have basically been ten singles that have all been released. Mm. And it's the same kind of thing. It's it's worth so much to have the um, the exposure from the singles than it is an album. So it's better to have you know a video and a single release and push those things all individually, and then hopefully when you collect that all together, then the album will sell well. Yeah, but you know. It, I think for me, like it feels a bit too daunting to think about albums when yeah. you're trying to get noticed as like a yeah. as a as an independent musician. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's better to put a lot of work into individual songs or maybe like a, an EP or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and really put the time and effort and you know the money into making those songs sound as as good as you can, and then mm-hmm. and then concentrate on the exposure because you, you could you could put loads of effort like two three years of effort into an album but if no one's listening to it then a lot of yeah. the effort's going to be wasted so
0: yeah i mean just to bring you in briefly brian on this i mean with your old band alice don't i mean you released released an ep didn't you like with about four tracks on it i think is that right
1: um, um we recorded a couple of things like, the, the, yeah. the um yeah there was one that but that um we, we we did a bit more of a push on and we did, did a, a short printing of it too which was a fairly traditional way of going about it um and yeah, we did look a little bit into into some of the more the, the the more internet based ways of doing things, and 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 how you can set up downloads. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot more we could have done. I feel that mm. um, that uh, that other bands are looking into. Um, but yeah,
0: but on that point, I mean, I think we've we've all. I think the only musician in the UK for whom music is a full-time job is probably out in John. So in view of that, you know, that pretty much every musician has to work, um, is time, Pete, must be a bit of an issue in terms of sort of fitting in, being able to do what you want to do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Time is an issue. And um, uh, you mentioned the the masterclass single, which I released yeah. last year, and it quite embarrassing to think about the, the, the time that went into just that one song. Um, uh, it probably stuck like that song came out, I think it was October or November of last yeah. year. And, the work towards it started in January of the same year. And originally it was, it was going to be an album. Then it was going to be an EP mm-hmm. and by September it was a single. And right. I'd I'd already, I you know I'd started booking shows for a tour in, in March and everything was building up to the release of what I didn't really know at the time, but I knew there's going to be something finished and something ready. And in the end it, it just, it, there's not enough time to do everything mm-hmm everything as well as you want to do it so a masterclass yourself is like an, an eight minute song with a ridiculous amount of instruments on it and, it and that itself it became a bit of a an obsession just to get that perfect so a lot of the other demos and songs I've been writing at the same time kind of fell by the wayside and I wanted to make sure that the, the tour was it was as good as it could have been you know yeah after a certain point in the year my attention started to to drift towards that um so, yeah, time is a massive factor, especially when, you know, you, you do have a job um, yeah. and uh, you can't just, you know, spend eight hours a day working on your music.
0: No, that's right. I mean, it's the same for all extracurricular activities, including podcasts. So uh, um, but um, so t- you mentioned touring there. I mean, have you got any plans for some tours over the next year or is anything you'd really like to do that at the moment has been impossible, you know, since getting out there? Um,
2: well, I haven't got, firstly, I haven't got um, a tour planned for this year. I've got yeah. some... Um, other shows in the pipeline, but again, it's kind of that's to do with spreading myself maybe too thin. I've, yeah. I've got like a few songs I'm trying to get recorded at the moment and putting all my time into that, and still trying to play the odd live show when I can. Um, as as for what I'd like to do, I'd, I'd you know I'd love to to play more places I've not played before. You know, I've I've been lucky to play quite a lot of cities in the UK up to this point, but there's still a few I haven't. I've still not been to leeds to play i haven't yeah. i haven't played in scotland um i'd love to do that um i'd love to play shows in europe but again these are all sort of um not not pipe dreams but this is all stuff that that, that will take a lot of planning and a lot of work and it feels like you can only do one thing at a time you know so hopefully if i um if i work hard to get the, the next set of songs right then i can put the work into that
0: Sounds good, um, and I know you've been doing a bit of remixing as well. And particularly recently, you released a, a great remix of a track by a band called Lowe's, who are yeah. on the Oxford scene. And so you're doing quite a bit of that, then. And who approaches who on that
2: kind? Um, Usually, the the band approaches you. I mean, especially especially in Oxford, there's there's a lot of, as you know, Oxford's got a great music scene, especially yeah. in terms of, um, you know, tight knit relationships between between bands and artists and people you know um doing favors for each other in terms of gigs or remixes and um studio time things like that that's kind of how a lot of people get stuff done is 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 trading favors and and that's what's so good about being a musician in oxford um so yellows yeah, asked me um to do a remix for the song um, i played a gig with them i think about two years ago right um and yeah, I was I was happy to do it. I mean, remixes is something I've I've always kind of done as as a way to sort of keep busy. Because whilst I'm moaning about not having time to do anything, one of the one of the easiest things for me to do is sit at my laptop and tear someone's song to shreds and build it back up again. It's something yes. I can do on my lunch break and work. You know, it's very yeah. easy to do that type of thing. So um, I'm invariably working on at least one remix at any given time, just 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 right. to, to, to fill those little gaps in time that I have.
0: So if you fancy um, having your song remixed, listeners, you know, know where to come. Um, and, and lastly, just on, on your own stuff, Pete, um, we've talked a little bit about introducing vocalists. Is that something you've been tempted by? Get someone on board? Uh,
2: I honestly don't know how to ask that question. Like, um, I, w- I wouldn't be against having it. it I find it, it almost impossible to imagine what it'd be like but then, you know, that's because everyone's got a different voice, and you don't know until you try, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, I guess I'm at risk of sounding maybe a little bit uh, antisocial. I've 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 recently started rehearsing with a drummer to try that out. It's something I've been thinking about for ages, and it just takes me so long to get around to actually pulling my finger out and trying it, you know, and, and seeing what it sounds like. and And it has been really great to to, to experience my songs with a different dynamic and it would be the same with a vocalist i'm sure but um maybe it's just a case of um finding the right voice and then feeling like yeah that would click and this is something that remixing kind of opens my eyes to quite a lot as well if i'm remixing songs with vocals in and it very much feels like my style of music but with a vocalist on top and you do think that maybe it would work um but yeah maybe i'm just not the best at uh trying these things out
0: well yeah no it's interesting to see it evolve i mean you've, you've got a good body of work behind you now so like the bands you were talking about earlier on it's sort of you know worth maybe sort of you know trying some new things but certainly um i'd urge anyone to uh seek out pete's bit Pete server in the name of Kidkin. it's really worth seeing and is it kind of mainly on Bandcamp or soundcloud or
2: yeah so most of my music's on uh soundcloud and Bandcamp. um the masterclass single you mentioned is was the first one that's gone up on iTunes and right. um, Spotify and all the other websites as well. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot more music available on SoundCloud and Bandcamp.
0: Great. Well, thanks for coming in and Brian, any, any possibility of returning to, to music soon? I know you're a, you're a father of a, you're a father now. So is it, is that something that's on the agenda?
1: Um, nothing in the immediate future. No plans yeah. right now. No, very okay. nice disappointing
0: (laughs) after this break we're going to be talking about uh, a band from Pete's Pete City Liverpool Forest Swords well one person in fact from uh, Pete City Forest Swords look out for that after this short break welcome back today's album is Forest Swords, Compassion which is their second album and a bit like Pete's Kid Kin, this is actually an album recorded by one man under the name of a band it's Matthew Barnes is his name and he's from Liverpool as well his first LP, Engravings, was out I think three or four years ago and really created a good good buzz uh, thoughts on it, early doors fellas yeah,
2: um, yeah I really liked it um, I should probably say I think Matthew Barnes is actually a little bit closer to home than I originally thought I think he's from the Wirral which is where I'm from all oh, right yeah. um I read that somewhere um
0: so I didn't quite get my little geography okay. correct there you're from that side of the water I yeah, wouldn't yeah. be
2: forgiven if yeah. I didn't yeah <laughs> um no I, I don't know if we went to the same school or anything or <laughs> but um yeah like I I was familiar with his earlier stuff is it, it they're, they're they're not um it, he had a previous album called engraving that's about right. four years yeah. ago I, I remember listening to it a couple of times when it came out because i'd heard about forest swords um through the liverpool music scene yeah. i kind of keep sort of an ear to the ground sometimes about what's going on there and I, I think he was he was nominated or won one of the local awards there called get into this which is for right. sort of like upcoming uh, liverpool merseyside based artists um and that kind of brought him to my attention and at the time I thought it was quite interesting it reminded me of some other electronic artists um that have been coming up at the time um uh like Slow Magic and and Gold Panda and people like that but it seemed a lot more darker you know yeah. a, a lot more yeah. really intense listen um and it's not something that, that gelled with me at the time but having listened to his new album you can definitely see a progression from from where he's come from and You know, his earliest stuff, I think his first EP that came out in 2010, got a lot of acclaim for being precisely that, very moody and very tense. Um, And the new album, uh, Compassion, shares some of the same sort of the style, same style of music. Lots of like um, glitchy vocals, lots of chopped up samples, um, lots of atmospherics, but it just seems a tad more uplifting. Um, There seems to be songs on there which... uh, just a bit more accessible, basically, uh, and just gives it a, a bit more of a varied, all-round listen to uh, compared to his previous efforts.
0: I would really agree with that. I think it's much more upbeat, and I mean, I found burial was much more of an influence on this one. There's sort mm. more, as you say, that glitchy sampling, um, more vocals, I and mean, even reminding me at times of sort of future sound of London. I think there was a little bit of that you know, almost world music sort of in the background. And, um, yeah, the first album's pretty dark, you know, and mm. sort of almost imagine kind of some kind of it being recorded in some kind of Victorian kind of graveyard or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, very, very gothic, you know. And uh, I, I I think this is absolutely superb album. Really, real, real progression. Um, I think that one of the early singles, I think, The Highest Blood, I think, is particularly good. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think for me it sort of feels that whole storied cathedrals of sound kind of template. Yeah. Uh, Brian, what, what were your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it. its uh, I, I don't know if musicians enjoy hearing their music described as, as pleasant, but it has this really... <laughs> it, it, it has this, uh, like an, a nice organic sound to it. It, 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 it didn't feel um, kind of... I haven't heard his previous album, but I couldn't, you couldn't call it dark, really, in any mm-hmm. way. There's this nice airy feel to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you are mentioning it had some kind of world music kind of tones in the background. It reminded me a little bit to the soundtrack the computer game civilization. But yeah, it was definitely something that I put on again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in an interview with Fact Barnes, he sort of talks about the hybrid of digital and analog sounds used to create the record. And yeah. just to quote, he said, notes that computer generated instruments and digital processing on recordings blur the lines between real and fake, You know, which we kind of mm-hmm. talked about, and again, in inverted commas on the record. Um, and he draws parallels between his music and the current affairs trend of sort of fake news in the media, which I don't know if it's like stretching it a little bit, but um, <laughs> but certainly again, I mean, I'm in admiration as we talked about early on of like one man managing to create these sounds, and you know, yeah. it's not particularly easy in, in the studio. I don't know how much he tours, but I, th- I think he, I think he might do a little bit. So I mean, I think it's 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 something, but. But, you know, Pete, I think it brought to mind, I mean, you, you had something else to say about, about sort of Animal Collective and about, uh, you know, the way they record their sound on stage, which is a, obviously there's there's a few of them, but none yeah, the uh, less virtuoso. Written.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a the, the point you made there about Forest Swords. We said blurring between acoustic and and digital, basically. That, like, listening to this Forest Swords album, it is, what occurs to you is it's really hard to tell what it is you're listening to like like you said there's some sort of like tribal drums in the background but then there's a lot of other sounds which sounds like they might be acoustic but they've been processed in some way or they've been quietened or muffled and it it, it creates a great atmosphere but it is quite hard to tell where the line is between digital and acoustic on this album but you can tell there's certainly more going on that meets the eye um, and that kind of reminded me of Uh, animal collective i remember watching a a documentary or or like a behind the scenes footage thing on on youtube which was talking about their live setup on stage and basically when if you if you have ever seen animal collective they look like a pretty much they look like a normal band the four piece on stage lots of percussion going on lots of guitar playing live drums etc and but actually what seems to be going on is that a lot of the instruments if not all of them are, are, are plugged into this sort of computer like a big brain that's just doing a lot of processing behind the behind the scenes you know and manipulating the sounds for them uh live as it happens and then coming back out of the brain and then into all the amplifiers and stuff like that so um i've not had the i've not had the fortune of seeing forest swords live but i'd be interested to see how he's incorporating any sort of acoustic elements into his show maybe there's something similar going on but it's the techno- the technology is there, you know, to to allow you to do these sort of things on stage that you might have just been messing around with in the studio.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen Animal Collective once, and I must admit, I, I found it probably a bit too fussy. I saw them at Brixton a few years ago, and there's a bit too much going on. But my friend uh, and work colleague, Gerhard, he was with me, and he was down the front, getting as close as he could to the equipment to really try and see what was going on. And he was absolutely loving it, and he's a real aficionado of, like... You know, sort of electronic music going all the way back to the krautrock days. It actually is German, so you know, really, you know, really, really interesting. That I mean, that's a great anecdote. But I mean, I think, yeah, I think this Forest Swords album. I I think there's sometimes a danger, like you're saying, again, without the vocals. I mean, there are sampled vocals which are absolutely beautiful, but Mm -hmm. without a kind of, you know, real kind of killer, maybe stand-up track that maybe had a vocal over the top of it. If you think of like bands like the Chemical Brothers, they used to always bring in the kind of, you know, the guest vocalists, and they were often the tracks that. That mm. Became hits or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's,
1: uh, it, it could yeah. it could be in danger of fading a little bit into the background of whatever you're doing this album, yeah. but it, yeah. in in a, in a totally pleasant and uh, an enjoyable way. Um, yeah. I think if, if you are going to listen to an instrumental album that's, that's 40 or 50 minutes long and it's got like these discordant background notes, you might look up after 20 minutes and find that you're clenching your fists and it's <laughs> you're not having a very nice time. So so I wouldn't complain about about this album being a bit a bit kind of. Uh, low key i uh, i think that it is quite enjoyable in that way
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose another parallel might be with Tim Hecker, you know, who's who's been quite popular, particularly with the music press over the last sort of three or four years, you know, in terms of what he creates as well, you know, that discordant kind of sound. So, so yeah, I mean, I think a general thumbs up from all of us for the Forest Swords album. Thanks very much to Brian and Pete for coming in. Uh, We're at Sounding Board sixty nine if you want to connect with us on Twitter, which is pretty much the only way people have been connecting with us at the moment. And thank you for following us and interacting. Uh, We do have an email address which is um, at gmex.com and uh, we're on facebook as well you can just sort of search for us and you should be able to find us we should be back uh, over the summer with one or two very interesting plans uh, next time out i think we're going to look at the cardiff music scene and it's going to be the return of the conquering hero ben Woolhead. but thanks again to the guys i'm rob langham and back next time